This is Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's podcast series interviewing clean tech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Uh, all right, so we uh, we're jumping into another Clean Tech Talk podcast. This time with Mark Z. Jacobson of Stanford at Professor. You have so many titles. I might let you run through your favorites. Yeah. But professor at Stanford, you were J.B. Strobel's professor at Stanford, co-founder of Tesla, as well as I'm sure probably dozens or hundreds of other notable people who are maybe not household names. You also co-founded, co-launched the Solutions Project, 100% Renewable. There's a few of those. We'll get into that topic later. I'm curious the reasoning for the different ones. But uh, And we were lucky. We, we visited Tesla a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Tesla factory in Fremont. And Mark was nice enough to have Indian food with us in Palo Alto and we had a long, nice, fun chat about the early days of this clean tech world. So Mark, maybe introduce yourself a little more as, as you'd like to do it. Okay, sure. Um, so Mark Jacobson, um, I teach at Stanford University and I study climate, air pollution and energy, clean, renewable energy solutions to those problems. I've always been interested in trying to understand and solve large-scale air pollution and climate problems. And over the last almost 20 years now, I've really focused a lot on solutions in addition to understanding the problems. But I started at Stanford in 1994 and did my PhD on air pollution computer modeling. Most recently, we've, in fact, in the last 10 years, we, it's almost the 10-year anniversary of developing the first world energy plan that would be 100% renewables for the whole world. And the question was, is it actually possible, technically and economically possible, to transition the entire energy infrastructure of the world to just clean and renewable energy for all purposes? And so we're continuing to try to answer that question and to make it even more efficient to solve the, these problems. And I think um, I think the the early plan you're referencing maybe is this 2009 article that was in Scientific American. You and Mark Delucci wrote, I believe. We relied on that. You know, we, we, it's funny because we've we've sort of had a similar trajectory in our careers, but in different industries. So you know, I got into media blogging in 2008 and was heavily focused on climate science, and then ended up getting sort of pushed to clean tech, which wasn't really, it was sort of accidental. You know, I sort of tried to avoid it, but then I got pushed to it and, and clean technica has grown with the industries. But but for a few years, that paper in Scientific American, we used a lot to try to help fight back against the kind of FUD, the fear, uncertainty and doubt that people were pushing about renewables, that they couldn't do the job and whatnot. And then you got a lot more detail. Can you speak a little bit more about that transition from that early paper, where it came from? And then why you transition to the more detailed plans? Yeah, so that early paper was, it was well, Scientific American's a pretty general magazine, so there didn't have a lot of detail in it. I mean, it had kind of the end results of our what we had studied so far, but not a lot of detail. And it arose, actually that paper arose because during the previous year, I'd done a, a study that was really a review of different potential energy solutions to global warming, air pollution, and energy security. So I looked at a, a bunch of different technologies that had been proposed to try to solve these problems, including coal with carbon capture, biofuels, uh, nuclear power, and and a few others. And I was trying to evaluate compared to wind and solar and geothermal and hydroelectric, which of these technologies actually had the least impacts, with ignoring the cost at the time, which had the least impacts on the environment in, to, in terms of, of land degradation, in terms of climate benefits, in terms of air pollution benefits, in terms of 
uh, overall re reliability of the system includes a, and also in terms of catastrophic risk and risk to wildlife, et cetera. So we looked at about 12 different externality categories and a similar number of technologies and came up with the solution. The result was that, well, the wind and the water and the solar technologies were actually the best in terms of solving the problems. And, you know, the other ones, well, there, there are some benefits over regular fossil fuels, but they're, in the, they're not as good as the clean renewable energy technologies. And so then the next question arose was, well, can you take these clean renewable energy technologies and can you actually power the entire world with that? And that's when I partnered with Mark DeLucchi, who was at UC Davis at the time and now at UC Berkeley. Well, we yeah we did the Scientific American article, but that was pretty general. And then, but we had all these numbers prepared and wanted to do more research on this, so we ended up doing a more detailed analysis that was published a couple of years later in Energy Policy on pretty much the same subject: can we power the entire world? And we looked at more details, including uh, transmission costs, and uh, looked at the materials in more details. And and this is something we we I struggle with still on clean technica is there there can be news you know about breakthroughs and potential breakthroughs. In, in CCS carbon capture and storage or different types of non-renewable clean tech solutions. And it's sort of a struggle as an editor to decide to let someone write about it if they feel impassioned about it versus, you know, not covering something because, you know, we've sort of concluded that it's not cost effective to focus on some things over, over renewables. And there's this kind of sort of battle in the political world, I think, about where to put funding. So we don't want to contribute to a bad, bad apportionment of funding. So yeah, can you s speak a little bit more maybe about the role of that CCS as you see it today? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we look at this agnostically. I mean, we want to solve the problem. That's the, the goal is to solve the problem. And it's such a huge problem. Well, actually, it's not just one problem. I and mean, we're looking, most people that I encounter in this space are looking just at the climate problem. They just want to minimize carbon. And there's even an issue with that when you focus on carbon, because, you know, carbon dioxide only is about 45% of global warming. And then you have black carbon is the second leading cause of warming. It's on the order of 17 to 20% of the warming. And nobody ever talks about that in the space, but yeah. that- We're also we're also guilty of not giving that enough attention. <laughs> yeah, and then you have, you have methane and nitrous oxide and halogens and, and ozone, which is another sort from air pollution emissions. So anyway, we're solving the climate problem, but also simultaneously the air pollution health problem because there are four to seven million people die every year from air pollution and energy security because we want to have stable energy supplies for a long time and we want this energy system to be safe too. So the whole thing with carbon capture, it's like in, there's a lot of things in theory that sound good, but in practice, you know, even if in the, its best case, carbon capture does not address one bit the air pollution problem, it actually makes it worse by about 25% because you're, you don't actually, the carbon capture equipment is only taking carbon out. It's not actually taking anything else out of the, the emissions. And in fact, you need 25% more energy. And so you have 25% more emissions of everything <laughs> except for the carbon. And so it's just mind boggling to even think that people are considering carbon capture just from that point alone. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, and I, I give presentations around the world on, on these topics, and I'd like to start with the reasons for clean tech. Uh, and one of them is that that air pollution one that I try to focus on. It's, it's always a struggle. How do you wake people up? I use some pretty nasty images sometimes because I feel like there's just this habit we have as humans to start accepting what's common, no matter how ridiculous it is. And it's just at this point, it's ridiculous how many people die or suffer from air pollution and how we just sort of 
accept it because that's how it is when we have solutions that we shouldn't have to accept that anymore. Um, but, and then politically, you know, there's a lot of people, for example, former California governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who argue that you shouldn't even message around climate. You should message around air, air pollution and health because that connects with more people. More people are, can understand that and, and get influenced by that than by climate science, which a lot of people just goes over their head. Yeah, that's true. You, you're always you're really good with messaging. I, I've loved from the beginning that you had wind, sun and sun, wind and, and water or solar, wind yeah, and water. Yeah. It's like you're the only people who... <laughs> Who have, you know, instead of saying hydro, you say water, which is, you know, it's a little thing, but it's a big thing. And, you know, as someone who's in the field of communication and messaging, that's always connected with me. Then you started the 100% the, the solutions project. How do you how do you think about your role as not just a scientist, but a communicator? And this is something I think it's a fascinating discussion across academia. Well, it's, it's evolved. And but to even this, the thing that I'm most proud about, I mean, the WWS, which is wind, water, solar, I'm pretty happy about, although I remember Amory Levins once commented, because oh, I don't like, he said you should do SWW because WWS sounds too much like wuss. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Never, I don't think anyone else had that thought. <laughs> um, but... I mean, I thought about it, well, yeah, you'd have to stretch it to get there. But so I, I kind of still like it. it, just rolled off the tongue better, WWS. But I think the best thing that we came up with was just the, and it was a collective thing with the, in the Solutions Project group, you know, with Mark Ruffalo and Marco Kraples, and also we had John Wank was our um, part of it, and Josh Fox, and then there are others too. But we were brainstorming about, you know, what kind of, how can we like really you know, message, I guess, the conclusions of these studies. And that's where we really just focus on just 100% renewable energy. I mean, you know, just that, so that when you hear 100% now, I mean, that was, that's something that we really, I mean, that was yeah, a result of both studies. You were early. I mean, now you, it's all over the place, but you got, you, you were early. You were like, when this was like a crazy idea, you know, people acted like 100% renewables was psychotic and that yeah. you were like a Looney Tune and, uh, and of course, the world has come around a lot more. Also, there's just a, there's a huge, again, messaging benefit of 100%. People, I think you've said it or someone said it, people get excited about 100%. They don't get excited about 80% or 87% or... Yeah, nobody, nobody wants to go 98% of the way to the moon. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this is a little deeper though, because... It was the, the idea of 100% renewable energy. I mean, sure, there's one thing to have, like we had the paper in Scientific American and had on the title 100%, but it was really a messaging thing. So like, for example, when there was the, the New York climate march, I mean, we put out placards and it's, you know, it's 100% renewable energy. We took out a, an advertisement in the New York Times and it said 100% renewable energy on a, on a full page. And so it's like, this is how this word got out into the mainstream even though, and it's catchy on its own, I think. But there was also this really concerted idea, idea to like, this is what the focus should be on. We don't want to be negative. The reason we chose this was we didn't want to be negative. I mean, at, at the time, actually, the reason the Solutions Project came about was uh, because of the concern of fracking in New York. And yeah, you, you were telling you were telling me, uh, Kyle Kanan and me at, at dinner, uh, that you, Josh Fox, was it Marco Ruffalo at that time as well? Marco Ruffalo, yeah. Mark Ruffalo, Marco Kraples as well. Yeah, so you guys got together in New York for for something. Uh, yeah, it was a, a dinner. Yeah, and we had a dinner, and but it was brought together by Marco Kraples, who brought and Josh Fox. And, well, they're all kind of involved. I was kind of the last one to. I mean, was, they wanted to meet with me because we had done this hundred percent plan in Scientific American. 
And, and Josh, one, Josh Fox had done Gasland. Yeah, Josh Fox had, uh, had done the documentary Gasland, which had got him a nomination for an Academy Award. And it was really basically exposed the whole idea of fracking, of natural gas hydrofracking. But the idea was that, well, they wanted to solve this fracking problem in New York. And so that's why they came to me to try to maybe come up with an alternative. And, you know, we realized pretty quickly that nobody wants to hear about the negatives of things. They want to hear something positive. And if, because you can all say, let's don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Yeah. But if you don't have an alternative, then, you know, then you're, it's not going to go very far. And so and that's, I mean, that's what clean technique has grown on. We surveyed readers for years and I had one open question where I asked, why do you read, you know, what's your reason for, for reading clean technique? And heavily the answer was it's inspiring, inspirational, inspiring, you know, like over and over in one form or another, people were just happy to have something inspiring to read about in the case of so much to be concerned, you know, so much scary stuff with pollution and climate change. Uh, and I should say we've, we have now, we have like paying subscribers who support the, the mission and I forgot to note at the beginning that they can watch these pre-recorded sessions before we go public with these. So there, so some people got the invite at the last minute and are, are watching and um, they might throw in Q&A or, or chat questions. Uh, so be forewarned, but, I, but I'll, I'll ask everything. Yeah, but well, the mess, but the point I was trying to make is that the having a positive message is something I think that people, more people, support, and that's kind of why this thing has just accelerated. I mean, when when we started, like nobody knew anything about 100% renewable energy, 100% wind, water, solar, um, but. You know, then they started, in fact, all the activists in New York, you know, they were rallying around this as an alternative to fracking. And, you know, the combination of all that activism, but also having an alternative, because we developed a New York energy plan, which was really a, a way that New York could trans, transition to 100% clean renewable energy in all energy sectors. And it was a written plan. And this is something that the activists could actually rally around. And the governor got was aware of this as well. I mean, they got our plan. And eventually, the governor did ban fracking in the state and signed a 50% clean energy standard law, which is to go to 50% renewables in the electric power sector, but also did some other things in the other sector. And so there was some success on the policy level just by this mass uh, of the, a lot of the, with the activism, but also then our solutions project group with an energy plan brought it to the policymakers and there was an impact. And I liked the the way you told it at dinner too, was they they wanted a plan. I forget uh, the the exact sequence, but they they wanted a, a plan for this as an alternative. And you were sort of putting off writing a plan, <laughs> and then finally started sitting down and, and drafting something one evening, and ended up I think spending all night on it or something. Uh, yeah. So what happened was <laughs> actually at our initial meeting, and this was in June 2011, with when I met Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox and Marco Craples, I was asked, "Well, can you come up?" with a, a New York energy plan. And I said, uh, no, but I'll write one paragraph because, you know, that's all I, I knew it would take a long time. And I, you know, I was busy doing famous, famous last words. Those are my famous last words. And for many long articles or series, I have to say. Right. And so I thought, well, I'll write something and somebody else could take it from there and maybe you know, follow the steps that we had taken before. But then fast forward, we had a, another phone call and I was asked again on this phone call to write, you know, an energy plan for New York. And at that time, Again, I said, no, I'll write one paragraph. I was going to write that paragraph that night. And so I then started writing that paragraph. And then I got, just I got inspired, like really all of a sudden, because I realized, you know, 
we developed this world plan and I realized, you know, if people want to solve this problem, they really needed these plans at a more granular level. And this was a good chance to force myself to do something for a state. And I realized that also, you know, we, we can actually do it. I can really squish down this world plan into a state level plan and you know, gather some more data. And that night I actually ripped out. I just, I spent like I don't know, several, six, seven hours till like four in the morning or something. And I woke up in the morning and I sent this team that I'd been talking to, I sent them a New York energy plan literally overnight. I mean, it was the first step of one. It was- they were, they were like, was he pulling our leg? What the heck? You said last <laughs> night he couldn't do it. Then he sends it over. Was this a joke? You know, I, I, imagine, I wonder what their, <laughs> their reaction was. But there's well, a few reasons why you're a top professor at Stanford, right? You, <laughs> obsession with getting the details right, going in deep yeah. dive, I'm sure is part of that. Well, it took yeah, it took another year and a half to finally, I mean, and forty iterations. I mean, I had forty drafts of this paper with a lot of more people came on board and added their input before it finally got published. But I remember one of the comments that the next morning was, "Well, three more phone calls like this, and we'll have the whole problem solved." So, <laughs> but it was, but it was. I mean, no, no illusion that that solved the problem, but it was. It really got me inspired, and then from then on, you know, this it got the whole group inspired, and so that's really what launched. We had something then to work around as a as a team, and this team is not. I mean, I I was so used to working in just academics with you know with other scientists and interacting with other scientists and, and students, but this really exposed me and enabled me to broaden this out to actually then work with uh, business people, to work with cultural leaders and community leaders, and, and so that's what really made the solutions project unique was that it was really a combination of science, business, culture, and ultimately community as well. And it was it's that collective, having that collective group of from different areas that have totally different perspectives and different followings that really made this very powerful because me on my own, nobody listens to a scientist, but you know, me with and common in combination with other leaders of, of different um, areas. Of Mark Ruffalo brings, brings a few yeah. people along, right? I, I hear yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, my, my wife loves him. I think <laughs> she would love to meet him one day. <laughs> she, she's a, uh, I, everyone I know loves him as an actor. He's a wonderful actor. He, a lot of humanity comes across in his performances. He, he just seems like a, a very thoughtful and caring person. Uh, well, it, I think you, you captured well early too. There's a thirst for this. There's a thirst for solutions, for positive uh, stories, for someone to show the way and, and that kind of thing. So I think you said, you know, you, you, you then you got the... You got the financial backing of people like Elon Musk, Wendy Schmidt, uh, Eric Schmidt's uh, wife, uh, Scarlett Johansson, several people in Hollywood who who wanted to put their money behind something good. And then you became a key voice for this message, 100% renewables. But I, I know you've got like a few, you're behind like a few things now. There's the Solutions Project. What What's the reason for the kind of diversification of organizations you, you started and, and what the different purposes yeah. are? Well, let me yeah, first clarify. Like, so Scarlett Johansson joined the board, but didn't. Uh, didn't oh, sorry. That is uh, the other ones did before we actually became public, because we from 2011 to 2013, the Solutions Project was behind the scenes, and there we we gathered like about 50 board members from the most of them were celebrities that most people have heard of, and but it didn't translate when we became public. You know, most of most of them weren't you know official board members because it took a slightly different direction. I see. But um, but in terms of the 
the solutions project was really formed to to try to educate the public and policymakers about these renewable energy plans and try to engage the public. And so to so it was partly a difference. It was a different from many other organizations uh, in that we actually did science and then we had pretty good celebrity uh, star power to actually then disseminate the information and business leaders who could disseminate the information quite well. Um, it wasn't an activist group. The purpose of the group is not to like lobby for legislation or to... Yeah, it was educational. Every time we covered you, it was about a plan that you had created just to broaden the, the awareness uh, of course you know the state plans the country plans those all seem to be just educational right yeah so originally that was the original goal was to really educate the public and policymakers about these plans and do do more science and then but to really um, yeah get the information out to large numbers of people now over time the solutions project has kind of changed directions shifted direction so that because you know the plans became well known and I mean over the years we developed all these like state plans for all 50 states country plans for 139 countries, town and city plan. And the solutions project did make infographics for all of these and put them on the website and disseminate the information. But once that was done, they wanted to do something else in addition to that because the information was kind of self-perpetuating and was getting out there. Uh, they did organize all these other nonprofits. So we worked early on with the Sierra Club uh, in particular, who took the basic our state plans and then but then went to different cities on their own and really got cities involved and has now over 113, has about 113 cities and, and towns that have either committed to 100% renewable energy, I think five have already reached it in the electric power sector. And there are also now a bunch of companies that have reached 100%. There's like 167 companies that's through this group called RE100.org. But the Solutions Project helped to galvanate all these other nonprofits. Now there are at least 100 nonprofits that are on board with 100% renewable energy. And so to that ex- to that that's, end- That's a hundred for a hundred. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's one of the reasons why this is so widespread now is because we have all these other nonprofits that came on board and have been spreading the word, helping to. I think I think we need a pro- nonprofit one hundred for one hundred, one hundred yeah. for one hundred percent, and then we could have one hundred for one hundred for one hundred percent. You know, we could just keep going. Well, anyway. <laughs> Initially, kind of like the solutions project, it, it then kind of shifted it. Well, it didn't necessarily shift because this was always the first the idea in the first place was we really want to help everybody in this transition. We shouldn't leave people behind. So one of the tag lines was like 100% for the 100%. So it's 100% renewable energy for 100% of the people. And But then there was a lot of focus on community disadvantaged communities and trying to get disadvantaged communities engaged because this is not their first priority. They have a lot more pressing things. And so a lot of work and resources went into really helping disadvantaged communities. And that's kind of where 100.org was a spinoff of what's well, so it's actually part 100.org is part of the solutions project.org. That's not a separate group. It's just a, a group inside yeah. of a group. So, but it's, it was really focusing initially on uh, disadvantaged communities and trying to engage them, bring thought leaders together. And they started giving small grants out to small groups to, who, to advance the hundred percent renewable energy research or, or other activities that were really helping with it. And just to close on, so uh, the plans, they're still being, uh, I'm sure, used by organizations or, or government, uh, governments or activists around the, the world to try to push for solutions, I imagine. Do you get contacted much for your help with that? Or is it just, you know, people are basically have taken it and are running? Well, there, 
each of these plans, they're like a, an endpoint where what the society would look like in terms of energy in the future. In this case, it was 2050. Now the transition can occur faster, but you know, at least by 2050, this is what, is what the plan would look like. And it tells you how many wind turbines, how many solar panels, how many geothermal plants, et cetera, you need in one scenario to power a city, a state, a country with 100% clean renewable energy. And it would tell you other things like job creation and loss and cost and land use. And so, but in reality, like what's going to happen is like, you know, the transition is going to take a different path with that goal. So the idea was to put out a goal and say, yeah, it's possible. This is one way to do it. There are other ways to do it. In fact, because, you know, costs of energy are changing continuously with different technologies, you know, there might be more solar, there might be more wind, there might be more something else than we propose because we're basing it on what the costs are at the time and you know some of the other information but it's not it's not the only solution by any means and in fact it's unlikely to be the exact solution but so we're trying to even update now like our country plans you know there are a few years past when we started and so this is kind of a, a continuous update updating that's going to go on and eventually you know hopefully there are states and cities that are using this information but they're using it more to gain confidence that it's possible rather than, oh, this is what, exactly how we're going to get, go. And in fact, yeah, in fact, all, all these states that have converted to 100%, I mean, as far as I know, most, all of them are aware of these plans, have seen it, and that has given them confidence. Mm-hmm. And So yeah, to dive, get a little technical here, you know, one of the, I think, challenges in this space is a lot of people pretend they're experts or like to present uh, their own version of an expert view without perhaps looking as carefully at the details as you've done. And you see a lot of, I mean, well, even the early days of solar, for example, you saw a huge pushback where people claimed that you could only have like 3% or then 5% of, of solar on the grid. And if you went beyond that, it would crash the grid and all this. And that got updated tremendously up to like maybe 20%, 30% over the years as people realized there were solutions, easy ways to integrate it. And then with battery storage or others or complementary technologies, you know, you get higher and higher. What's your perspective on on the the general or maybe some even specific pushback on on this uh, idea of 100% renewables? What do you think they're doing wrong, or what do you think their their starting point is that's that ends up them saying no, you can't do 100% renewables? Yeah. So if I go back to 2009 when we came out with our first 100% plan, I mean our plan was just criticized to no end. I mean there's still comments I think on Scientific American website just just panning the whole thing by many people. And a lot of the comments, well at the time it's like people, the utilities in particular did not believe you can do more than 20% renewables on the grid just because of grid stability issues. But this is something that I thought, okay, this is a fictitious number. I mean, we had started to do, in fact, in 2008, we did our first study looking at trying to match supply and demand on the grid. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, but we could see right away, because we did a study in California starting in 2008, just looking at, you know, just with solar, wind, geothermal, and hydroelectric, that was all. I mean, no batteries even. The hydroelectric is pretty much the battery. And we basically broke it up into months to actually look at real hydroelectric power supplies. And that's maybe a good, just quick note to highlight is people don't realize that certain sources like hydro, like water, can can be a kind of battery, even though it's not a battery. And it's people... Yeah, it effectively acts like a battery because you can turn it on and off. It ramps up within 15 seconds, basically as long as it takes for the water to get to the turbine. But we just, you know, this was a simple study. It wasn't a back of the envelope. It was, it was basically still simple, but it just, you know, showed that there was, you could time match power demand with supply with these, just these technologies 
is we did that for California in another more detailed study, actually doing an optimization. And we found the same thing that you can go to 100 percent without with, there's no reason you couldn't match it. Now, to granted, the grid operators are very, they never want to change anything. So this is kind of, a, they had a motivation not to want to go further. I would also say that they had never studied 100% renewable energy. In fact, none of the critics, I would say to a T, not a single one of the critics of 100% renewable energy have actually studied 100% renewable energy. They might have studied 80% renewable energy, uh, but they have never studied the same system that we've studied. So, so, And your studies are by 15-minute increments, aren't they? Or... Well, the, over in the, since 2014-15, we did a yeah 30 second increments. Oh, and, 30 second increments. Yeah, yeah, but they're, they're more like an hour. Um, okay. Yeah, so we did a 36. In fact, I use a, a model, the climate model I built, and it was also a weather prediction model. But actually, it would give you the winds. For example, every thirty seconds, or you can oh, do it. That's convenient. So you had you built a climate model that ended up feeding into these renewable energy plans, right? The- yeah. Well, this is what the advantage I had was I had I built these oh, entire global and regional climate and air pollution, climate and weather model that I could also use for energy. And I, so then I could predict the winds. And not only that, I could put in wind turbines into the model. And when the wind turbine is extracting kinetic energy from the wind, I can then take that energy out of the wind so that other turbines have less wind available, which is what happens in reality. So I could actually calculate, when you put large penetrations of wind, I can actually calculate the loss of wind and the loss of power resulting from that, which nobody has actually done in an energy study uh, to date. Another group has done this to date. So I was able to do this in pretty high detail. And now you can always find faults of it. Something's not included. Yeah, I think this is why it must be sometimes hilarious, sometimes frustrating as hell when people criticize your work as not being, <laughs> not being meticulous enough or not being you know careful enough. Yeah. And like you said, the critics probably all of them have never actually studied 100% renewable. Not a single one had studied 100% renewable energy. They and they and they and then they and they not only that they had never like even done you know this kind of modeling where they'd actually done the meteorological modeling. And to predict the, you know, the, the time-dependent solar and wind energy, and you know, uh, together, you know, like solar and wind together in time, for example. I mean, there are a lot of details that people haven't done; they don't really realize. And this is why it's so frustrating. I mean, I'm not saying that we've done everything because we didn't do you know, some things. We didn't do, for example, is you know, we didn't, we don't have individual transmission lines going through the whole U.S. But in fact, there is no model that has every single transmission line uh, because that's called a load flow model, and there's no load flow model that predicts in time. There's some that have some transmission lines, uh, but that's a, also an imperfect system too. So, I mean, clearly some of the attacks come from, you know, threatened industries. This is just natural, right? Fossil fuel industries or certain industries might have, you know, certain uh, groups that they fund or, or researchers they fund who, who are happy to go out there and criticize these. Otherwise, though, do you think it's just a case of people have assumptions that they just they they have too much faith in that they, they themselves have assumptions about what's possible or, or about the the grid or something that they just carry with them and that's why there's a kind of back or they're just afraid of of being ambitious well yeah i think the utilities in particular you know as i said they, they don't like to change things so they make assumptions that you can't do it without actually having tried but they also don't want to change i mean they're making you know they have a system set up where they're making a certain amount of money and they have no motivation to change and they realize that if you do change it 
It might be for them, it might be expensive. To society, it would be cheaper, but they don't care about society. They're looking at it from the private investment of themselves point of view. But having said that, you know, costs have come down and we did push the envelope. So we kept pushing on 100% renewables as possible. And all our studies, every one was just, I mean, I, having studied it, I realized this is definitely possible. All these people have no idea what they're talking about. It gets more, yeah. it gets more convincing even as time has gone on. Well, unfortunately, things have lined up where costs have come down, not only for solar and wind, but also batteries for electric cars. Well, I was fascinated when I, I interviewed, I forget when it was, an article for the Economist group that I did on solar cost drops and, and whether or not there's a need for a breakthrough. I think it was 2016 or 17, maybe. I interviewed a handful of people, including Bloomberg New Energy Finance's top solar person, Jenny Chase, who's awesome. And they had they had a forecast for price. I'm going to forget. I'm, I don't want to say the details right now because I'm going to forget them. We have an article I can link to. Uh, but they had a forecast for how costs would continue to drop by 2030 just based on incremental improvements no breakthroughs and it was significant it was like uh, hey this is still gonna drop well a couple years later i checked in with her and and others at bloomberg energy finance and the cost had dropped significantly more than they had expected just on incremental improvements so the costs continued to drop at rates that you know even relatively bullish analysts and, and, and industry players thought would be too too difficult so it's been a very exciting market uh, maybe to end we'll close with something fun uh there's i'll give you a couple of options maybe since you taught jb strobel if you want to tell us anything fun or quirky about him that would be cool or if you don't want to you could uh, tell us that story of the early days of having a tesla roadster well yeah a couple of good stories on that but um, with JP, so I don't know if I actually taught him. He was in he was at Stanford while I was a professor there. He was his advisor was Gil Masters, who was actually my mentor as well. And well, I took a class from him back in 1985, which really inspired me. And just I mean, I was I already knew what I kind of wanted to do, but he was just like he was just such a good professor. And he JB Strubble uh, was his student more, but he JB came to our program. But he also then taught came back and taught a couple of classes even while he was working at Tesla because he just had, it was on, it actually wasn't on electric cars that he taught, it was on storage. He taught classes on storage because that was his passion and it still is. But yeah, I remember the, the early days of the roadsters, like at the, now, like you could see an electric car or even a roadster on the road, nobody looks twice because there's so many of them. But at the time it was very, so it was really Especially cool. There, it's insane there. Oh my gosh, it was yeah. crazy. I mean, we in Florida we see like you know ten a day if you go out. Going to Silicon Valley, going to around Fremont and Palo Alto blew our mind. Even Kyle, who's from Southern, who's from Ventura, Oxnard, California Southern, he was like, "This is even beyond what you see down south." <laughs> that that is insane. You look up and you see like ten Teslas. You see them going through McDonald's drive-throughs. They're everywhere. There's like five right in front of your eyes. Yeah. Well, what I think, see, back then, I mean, Tesla was brilliant at the time because they you know they didn't go to a hybrid car they didn't you know want to deal yeah didn't all you know, at the time there was like the there was a prius that was available the there was a hybrid prius and they could have you know tesla could have easily done a prius but you know they wanted to go straight to an electric and not only that they didn't want it just like a prius type electric you know they wanted a sports car because that would get attention and that would really get change people's minds about electric cars because at the time everybody was suspicious about electric car but you know, concerned about the range and the cost and the unreliability and it's sort of hard to remember but back then it was like people saw electric cars as like golf carts slow vehicles you know not well, 40 vehicles and also vehicles that would need charging every 20 minutes <laughs> and 
they, they, and so in fact, how people thought about electric vehicles at the time, they also thought about the grid not going more than 20% renewable. It was the exact same thing. And once they put out their car, they, the Roadster is a beautiful car, but it also performed really well and it was accelerated really well. And so, and in fact, uh, it beat like a Ferrari and like a speed test and they advertised that out. And so people, that really got people to change their minds a lot right away that, well, this times have changed. Now electric cars can be cool. And I actually decided to get one because even though it was really expensive and I could barely afford it, I thought, you know, this is what I do. This is what I'm passionate about. I want to be an example. And I have to just, you know, I have to like do make an investment in something that uh, I believe in is the future. And then and, he said, oh, darn, I have to drive this Tesla Roadster. Well, so actually, boring. No, I'm just kidding. At the time, I thought I, I had no interest in whatsoever in the sports cars. I just thought, you know, like, I thought, oh, who'd be interested in this? Like, you know, so I didn't, actually, I didn't get it because it was a sports car. I got it because it was an electric car and it was the only electric car that I could buy. In fact, I looked around, I could not find any other electric car to buy. It was the only one. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm not, otherwise I'm not going to see another electric car for like three or four years. And I did it, but it, it was so amazing because it got so much attention from people and it was positive attention. And I thought, wow, this is really making a difference. And, you know, it's not just a few people. I mean, the, you know, at the early days, like, you know, people, you know, park anywhere and you get a crowd of like 20 or 30 people around this. I went to the Golden Gate Bridge once on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge to take a visitor to see the view of San Francisco. And we, I parked there and it, and like this whole group of like, it was like 30 or 40 tourists and turn around from taking pictures of San Francisco to turning around taking pictures of this car. <laughs> it was just and amazing. Were, were people aware of Tesla, the people who, or they just thought it looked like a cool car or? Well, I think, so. I think people have heard about it, heard about Tesla and then they saw one and it looked really cool at the same time. Yeah, it was just a, it was just an amazing thing where people were just looking, all you know, gathering around it all the time, and kind of you know, obviously it makes you feel kind of cool. But it did, it's, yeah. but that wasn't the reason I did it. But I was yeah. I was happy that so many people were interested in this because you know this is my goal is to try and make people aware of what's possible. And I felt that this car alone, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I must have gotten a thousand, you know, there must have been thousands of people over just in the first year who were really like that. And I thought they, you know, it was already converting people to electric vehicles, which they had thought was not um, possible before. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty shocking when you go back and you look at uh, Elon's 2006, I think it was, secret master plan. And it was pretty simple, you know, make an attractive, uh, fun sports car, then make a, you know, uh, an attractive, less, you know, more affordable family car and blah, blah, blah. And it was a pretty simple plan. And it's, it makes sense, it's logical, but it's just crazy how they basically followed that plan to the to the T and how they how they just nailed one. I mean, of course they had challenges along the way, you know. Elon's got plenty of nightmares from that, but uh and JB, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's just pretty pretty awesome how they they had this vision of how how they could make electric vehicles popular and they they nailed it uh, and so well thank you for being an early adopter early uh, evangelist evangelist uh, as they say and also of course for all your leadership and renewables we all i mean who knows how many people countless people owe you a tremendous amount of gratitude for your work uh, uh, one of the one of the leaders in a in one one of the biggest shifts in human history i think the shift from burning stuff to clean technologies so thank you very much well, thanks for having me on the show, Zach. Yep, and we'll chat soon.
Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. Thank you.